So I had this dream that it was a particularly beautiful sunny day. And I was in my convertible Italian sports car racing down the California coastal highway. My hair blowed back by the breeze, enjoying the magnificent sunshine. I glanced in the rearview mirror and I noticed how magnificent my Maui Jim sunglasses looked against my spray tan. <laughs> when all of a sudden, one of those horrible California earthquakes struck. And with a loud boom, crack, the, the road in front of me split wide open, a cavernous hole. I slammed on the brakes of the car. It was an awful moment, but fortunately, the thousands of dollars that I had poured into my personal trainers and my school, my cool sculpting sessions had prepared me, had toned me for just this moment. And with ab muscles crunching and reflexes firing, I leapt up out of the car just in time to see the automobile falling its way down into the hole and the last glint of the I went to Yale license plate cover sparkling in the sunshine and then descending in the darkness. It was a dream becoming a nightmare and it only got worse for you see, just as the car disappeared into the darkness, it struck something and, and it turned over violently, spewing oil all over my Armani sweatsuit. <laughs> and worse, slicing off my arm. Just then another motorist came by and, and saw me standing there staring into the hole saying, my car, my car. And the motorist said, are you crazy, man? Your car is the least of your problems. You've just lost your arm, man. And I looked down and I realized he was right. And the seriousness of my situation became clear to me. And I looked into the hole and I said, my Rolex, my Rolex. Okay, I made all that up. But I will tell you that that particular scenario I just spoke of, the appetites and the attractions suggested by that little story, do in fact in my own life strike a little bit closer to home than it is comfortable to acknowledge before you today. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm somebody who has decided to try and align my life as much as I possibly can with the principles and the practices and the priorities that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. I'm somebody that wants to be a follower of him in every way I can, but I am also attracted to shiny objects, to shiny objects. All that glitters in American society around me, all that beckons and begs me to make these things, these experiences, these appearances, the source of my identity and my security and my significance have an impact on me. They have this 
pull on me, and I sometimes get very distracted from the call of God in my life because of these things. I become enamored with them, and I begin to lose something of my devotion to pursuing the way of Jesus. And I wonder if I'm alone in that experience. When we read the Bible, it becomes clear that this temptation to distraction is not a new phenomenon. Long ago, we read in Exodus that the children of Israel were making their way toward the promised land. They were wandering through the wilderness, and on their journey, God stops them. He, in effect, opens up a a hole in the ground in front of them that makes them hit the brakes, and they stop in the wilderness. And at this point, God gives to them a variety of instructions that came to be known as the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Ten Commandments. So here is how they begin. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Now, it's important to stop right there for just a moment because these particular words set the context for everything else that follows. In fact, you really can't understand the rest of the Ten Commandments if you miss this one, if you miss what's really going on with this one. Here's the text or the Twitter version of this original kind of statement. God is saying, I don't want you to be slaves. I I, I hate it when you're in bondage. I, I, I hate it when... When you're in chains, I hated it when you were back there in Egypt, chained to these masters that cared nothing about your actual well-being. I hated it when you were crushed and burdened and owned by other people. In fact, that's why I got you out of Egypt. It's why I've got you on this road now towards the land of milk and honey. This is what God is saying here when he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then God goes on to give the Israelites 10 instructions about how they can enter into that promised land. And it's important to understand that when God gives these instructions and talks about the promised land, he's not just talking about a physical environment. He's talking about a way of life. He's talking about that that experience of life that he wants for you and for me and for everybody no matter where they live, no matter what the landscape looks like, this is what the Ten Commandments are designed to be. They're a roadway into a better quality of life that God wants to see everybody know and enjoy. So he goes on and he gives them clues in the list that follows. You can read it in Exodus chapter 20 yourself. He gives them clues on how to avoid giving your life to dead things. How to avoid actually accidentally ending up serving dead things. He talks about how to reverence the source of your life and thereby be filled with the power for living. He talks about how to avoid burning yourself out or burning out the people that look to you and follow you and try and keep up with you or who work for you. God lays out instructions for doing right by your elders In fact, I think you can make an argument from the Ten Commandments that Mother's Day and Father's Day are actually holy days. Honor your father and honor your mother, the Scriptures teach. 
that God lays out instructions for preserving life, for, for not messing up your marriage. Uh, in the remaining commandments, God advises us on becoming respectful, truthful, and contented kinds of people. In fact, the Ten Commandments are such stunningly relevant instructions for building the absolutely best kind of life in society, it makes me wonder, why don't we don't put these up on the wall? Has anybody ever thought of that? Maybe we should put these up on the wall someplace and, and, and pay attention to them and learn from them and draw life from practicing these things. The very first of the commandments is actually the most important one. In fact, I think it's the key to fulfilling all of the other ones. If we don't get this first one right, it's really hard to actually get the other ones right at all. And God's first instruction is, and I quote, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, be devoted to me first. Because it's going to be your relationship with me, it's going to be the connection you have with me, through which will flow all of the grace and the wisdom and the power that you need to live into your fullest potential as human beings. This is what, what God is saying here. And whatever you do, do not make for yourselves, he says next, do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Do not get distracted from me, he's saying. Do not get distracted from this great life that I'm trying to lead you into. Do not get distracted by worshiping shiny objects. They will just take you down the hole. And I don't want that for you. Now, in biblical times, there was a different word for what we're calling here shiny objects. And the word that was used in ancient times was the word idol. Author Michael Slaughter says that an idol is anything that receives the primary focus of my energy or resources, which should actually belong to God. Idols, he writes, are good gifts of God. Important to recognize that. They're good gifts to which we assign a wrong priority. Now, is there anything in your life or in my life that we could fairly describe as an idol? Nah. I, I, come on. Idols is the stuff of ancient, primitive, pagan cultures. We would never go in for that sort of thing these days. Or would we? I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. 
I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. So maybe, maybe this is a more familiar theme than uh, we would see at first glance or ponder at first consideration. Sports, I think, can become an idol to some people. It's one of the reasons why we started our Saturday night service here at Christ Church. We discovered we couldn't compete with the devotion that people have to youth sports, to early Bears games, to the glimmering, glistening golf links on Sunday mornings, uh, people would just be distracted and would devote themselves to those things. Our political tribe can become an idol to us. Our family comforts can take the place of God in our own lives. Uh, we have television temples now, as you know, absolutely dedicated to uh, honoring and revering and, 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 and exulting in uh, celebrities, in musical celebrities. Uh, they call the show American Idol, right? I'm a devotee of The Voice. I watch it religiously, I often confess, right? Although there was a time when, when people heard that term, The Voice, they thought of God, not Blake Shelton. So our culture is drawing us into these obsessive, focused, devotional commitments to things that are not necessarily about God's purposes. How many of you have, would acknowledge that these, these screens that most of us carry in our pockets are among the shiniest objects ever created, aren't they? They stand between us and, and relationships of, on, on the vertical and on the horizontal level. We're, you go to the restaurant, what are people doing at the tables? They're, they're in, in devotion to whatever it is that is on that particular uh, screen. Uh, the massive industries that push uh, perpetual youth on us or that push uh, varied s sex partners and eroticism on us. These are powerful temples of another religion. So are our online and our physical shopping centers uh, constantly drawing our attention away from the relationships of our lives that are meant to be uh, the most important ones. And on one level, it's tricky because all of the things, or at least many of the things at the center of these various acts of devotion are, as Michael Slaughter said before, good gifts. They're, they're good gifts of God, but they're things to which we have assigned a wrong priority level in the course of our journeying. And when we assign them that kind of primacy, they betray us. They betray us. They eat up 
time and energy that we might otherwise have put into worshiping God or reading his word or building deep relationships with other people or walking out and enjoying the staggering beauty of this creation that the creator has given us or really reflecting on our lives and whether we're going where we want to be going in life, these shiny objects have a way of drawing us away from addressing the needs of others and the deepest needs of our own souls. So here's a, a, a tough truth. Most of our kids aren't going to be D1 athletes. Most of them are not going to become professional athletes that support us in the style we'd like to grow accustomed to in our old age. They're not. But just as one example, the passionate commitment we have to trying to push them down that road means that they will not experience the Christian nurture, the, the, the life of encouragement where they would develop a relationship with God and a relationship with a community of faith and a worldview, moral vision, that would make a very big difference for them, for the good, if they did develop those kinds of connections. Most of us, I think, would be much better off having, having marriages and friendships that were even deeper and more intimately connected. We'd be, be better off investing in those things than being more knowledgeable about, a little bit more proficient in, whatever it is, so often gets our alternative devotion. Worship is not a once a week, 75 minute activity. Worship is the orientation that you and I bring to our lives 24 seven. Worship derives from the word, literally it's a conjunction of two words, worth-ship. Worship is whatever we assign supreme worth in our life on a practical level, which is why the most important and the most kind and the most controversial question I could possibly ask you is, what are your idols? What are your idols? Who or what are you really putting first in life? What am I putting first in life? I say that last part because you remember that dream of me driving along the road in the sports car, right? You, you remember that, that, that little fantasy picture, rejoicing in my golden appearance, my glittering degrees. I wasn't kidding, I get seduced by this stuff too. I am in this with you in a very big way. I'm tempted all the time to root my sense of identity and security and significance in all of these false gods. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it's true. Even after all these years, I get distracted by these things. I tell myself at times, well, I'm not really devoted to those shiny objects. I'm just diversifying my life a little bit. How many of us, I wonder, you know, this is the way we process this stuff. It's not like I'm really dedicated. I'm just, my life has just got fullness to it. It's got a range of things to it. But I find as I diversify my devotions, uh, it becomes harder for any one thing to really get the affection and attention it deserves. And I find that these diverse distractions become fragmenting 
dominating forces in my life. I begin to think I need one central devotion that helps me order all of the other devotions of my life. And God offers himself to be that good, benevolent, wise, trustworthy center for our life. And I know I need to make him that for my own best interests. How about you? How do you think about these things? I want to just be as straightforward as I possibly can about this because I don't think that, that many churches are these days, many pastors are these days. God commands us to make him, to make him alone the object of our devotion. You can have lots of interests, he says, but only, please, only one ultimate devotion. You can have many inspirations, but you must have one true and first love. Diversification and devotion are opposite things. Long ago, the nation of Israel was uh, infiltrated by a variety of foreign cultural and religious practices, and the Israelites began to diversify their affections and attentions. And it began to change their moral vision and the quality of their cultural life. God sent prophets to them that said, do not forget the covenant that I made with you. God was speaking through these prophets. Don't forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God for it is he who will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. Here's the translation here. Here's the application for us. God wants to make a covenant with you and me. He wants an intimate covenantal relationship with you and me, an exclusive vow of loyalty to him above all others, and he in turn will provide all kinds of blessings and benefits that come out of that covenant. It works a little bit like a marriage covenant. That's really, in a sense, the, the picture of this. What is the word for when somebody is supposedly in a marriage covenant and then gets distracted by diversifying his or her love interests. What's the word for when somebody does that? Adultery. Adultery. Which rhymes with expensive divorce. Okay? Not a good thing. And in the Deuteronomy 5 version of the Ten Commandments, God says that he is jealous that he is jealous when we diversify our love interests. Now, when we hear the word jealous, we typically think insecure. Trust me, God is not insecure. He is, he is not going to lose out if, if we blow him off and, and move on to other things. He is not the big loser in that arrangement. He's not. In fact, the Hebrew word that underlies that term jealous in the Old Testament actually is more fittingly translated as in passionately invested. God is passionately invested in seeing us thrive and flourish and live into our fullest kind of potential. And so God tells Israel in this particular text, 
I'm all in with you. I'm committed to protecting you and providing for you and helping you build a more abundant life than any shiny objects can possibly deliver. I have, for some strange reason, spent the entirety of my ministry career living in the wealthiest communities in America. I grew up in one of the wealthiest communities. I came to this community from, I think, the number two wealthiest community in America. I've been around people who, who had uh, an abundance of shiny objects that blow the mind. And I have been struck time and time again at how it does not remove the fundamental hunger for a more reliable identity and security and significance then the idols have the power to deliver. That they, then these dead things have the power to actually deliver to us. I think that the first problem with getting distracted and letting God slide down our uh, priority list is that it affects him. It, 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 it affects his heart. It hurts the heart of the one who gave us life when we're injuring ourselves. Your moms, you know this. What, what do you feel when one of your kids is going down a trail that you know is not going to help them, is going to hurt them? Your heart aches. You, you, you struggle with this. It wounds you. And so God's jealousy, his passionate investment in us is wounded. It damages the intimacy we could have had with him. Does it worry you or concern you? Do you feel it at all, this concern that you might be inflaming, wounding the heart of the one who gave you life from your mother's womb? There's also a second problem when we get too comfortable with idolatry. And, and let me just say, I say I choose that term carefully because we are going to stray into it now and then. We're human beings. We're going to get distracted. Squirrel, you know, <laughs> it happens to us. I get that. But when we get comfortable with it, when we begin to rationalize it and say, oh, it's okay, it's not really that much of a problem, then, then we enter into another realm that has implications worth thinking about. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we read this. It's on the subject of idolatry. They would not listen, however. God warned them, please don't go down this road. Please don't get distracted. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Even though they were showing up in church, their life the rest of the time was often about the idols. Can it get more culturally relevant for us than this? And then here's the key lesson. The next verse. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. You know what's really dangerous about getting comfortable with a life that's distracted by the shiny objects rather than devoted first and foremost to God? You know what's really dangerous about that? Other people notice it. 
our neighbors and our workmates, they know what we're actually devoted to. No matter what our talk is, they know. And more scary, our kids do. They are not transformed, our kids, by our aspiring proclamations. They are transformed by our actual priorities. That is what they learn. That is what they take on. Our kids, more often than not, reproduce in their lives what we were truly passionate about. When I was a kid, I had a mother that dragged me out to church. I would sneak in in the early mornings like a commando on my belly and turn off the alarm on Sundays hoping they wouldn't wake up. But my mom had a way of waking up in time. And she would drag us out to church. And uh, me and my siblings, we would very reluctantly go off to church in these starchy, uncomfortable clothes. And, uh, and we'd go to Sunday school. That would be the first thing that happened. And my mom would go to Sunday school. And then an hour later or so, uh, my mom would show up, my dad too, and we would go off to a worship service. And I remember that the seats were not soft. And I remember that it was hard to sit there. And I remember being bored silly sometimes, as some of you are right now, by the preacher that just droned on and on and on. But I also remember that some of it stuck. That some of what was said in that place got to me. That those Sunday school teachers loved me. That those stories found a place in me. I remember that my mom used to read the Bible at home. I can picture the Bible there, notes in the margin. It was important to her. I saw that. And so I remember the summer when I was at daily vacation Bible school, and I started to read the Bible for the first time. And I started to memorize verses from the Bible for the first time. Verses I can still remember to this very day. Now, some of you know, I threw faith aside. I left it for many, many years. I didn't believe any of that hooey anymore. I didn't want any of those constraints and strictures on my life. But I think that one of the factors that played into my eventually having a change of heart about some of these things and rethinking it was because of the example of my mom. Moms, dads, what are the actual priorities going on in our lives that our kids are noticing, maybe even taking notes on unconsciously? It is never too late for a parent to set a great example in this regard. I have a friend named Brian, 64 years of age, he wakes up at a deeper level than ever before and realizes that faith matters and that he wants to, be, to finish his life strong as a witness to his loved ones. And that is going to be a challenge because he has pancreatic cancer and it is ruthless, it is stage four, he doesn't have much time. This faith business is not a rabbit foot for him. He knows his days are numbered. But he wants to make the most of that time, and he devotes himself afresh to worship, to the study of God's word, to prayer, to talking about these things with his loved ones. 
and it makes a dent. It has an impact on his family, and the whole family begins to renew its relationship with God in a marvelous way. It is never too late to leave a good example. So how do you know what your actual priority is? How do you know what your real devotion is? Well, one clue is how you spend your time. Look at your calendar. Uh, how are you allocating your, your energies uh, over time? Uh, I know that the statistic today is that about 17% of Americans will show up in a church on a given weekend. I know that the statistic is that most people that consider themselves regular church attenders will actually come only three out of eight weekends a year. They feel that is regular. Imagine if you just served meals three out of eight times and, and what that would mean, or if you only ate uh, at that particular rate. So think about your calendar. How are you spending your time? What is getting your time? What, what has your absolute uh, devotion? Then check your financial expenditures. They don't call it a checkbook for nothing. Uh, our, our financial affairs say a lot about where our priorities are. Jesus told 16 of his 38 parables about money. He taught more about the subject of our material possessions and what we do with them and then on any other topic except faith because he knew, and he said it, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It will also be there. Find out where the treasure is for you. Chances are your heart's there. Choose what your treasure will be. Your heart will go there. He talked a lot about these things. So as we head out onto the world today, and I'm almost done here, I know we're all going to find ourselves tempted. We are in the midst of the greatest idolatry machine ever invented by human civilization. Let's just name that. We are. And we're going to be called upon from every single side by these various industries of idolatry that want our attention and our money and our absolute devotion. But please remember, all that glitters is not gold. It's not what we most need. This whole mentality of I want, I need, I have, I keep, this is killing us. This is putting us down the hole. It's not leading us to life abundant. An earthquake is going to come that will swallow up everything that is material. Have, have you figured that out? You know that, right? None of us escapes that. On the road ahead of us as we're driving along, it's going to open up for everybody. And it's going to swallow everything material. And the things that will survive, faith, hope, love, these abide. And the greatest of these is love. The love of God and the love that he pours out with us and in our families and our relationships. Jesus offers us the real thing where the world offers us this fool's gold, these shiny objects. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. This is not the way of miserliness and stinginess and narrowness. It's the way of abundance. That's what he wants for us. I want you to thrive and flourish. He wants us to know peace and joy and love and faith and fulfillment. But that only comes when we put him first. That's the keystone to it all. 
He wants our covenant devotion to him, a a deep abiding commitment, a passion to please him, and to have that commitment be the filter that we use to manage our time and our resources and the decisions that we make. All of us need to keep on refocusing ourselves on the one who asks to be our first love, to be in first place in our life. And that's why it is important to prioritize. And I want to encourage you, just give you, as you go, a couple of simple suggestions. Spend time in a service like this on the weekend someplace. Doesn't have to be here. Find yourself a better church where the preaching is more interesting. Uh, You know, find one. Uh, Because the lack of American church attendance is showing in the way we're doing our life together as a society, right? The fragmentation, the conflict, the madness. This comes from having lost our moral bearings. So show up in a church on a more regular basis. Secondly, get involved in a small group during the week. Get some partners for the journey that helps reinforce your your following of Jesus, where you find support and can encourage each other and study and pray together. Thirdly, practice some spiritual disciplines. You'll never become a great golfer if you don't get out on the practice range, right? You'll never become great at anything if you don't practice. That's what spiritual disciplines are. So read your Bible and pray and and, uh, use a devotional at home during the week, and it will make a difference. And finally, be a generous servant. Be a generous servant. If you're not already giving away 10% of what comes your way, rethink that. Ask yourself, why is it that I can't somehow live on 90% of of the income to the wealthiest society in the history of the human race? How is it that I can't reorder my priorities enough to just use 10% to be a blessing to other people? Think about that. Because these are the kind of spiritual commitments that build our devotion to God and reflect it. These are the kind of spiritual commitments that lead us into the abundant life and wean us from distraction with all those shiny objects. Shall we pray together? Lord, thank you for the extraordinary power of your holy word Thank you that you care enough about us to challenge us, to call us into that life that is truly life. Help us to find it. Help us to rededicate ourselves today to making you the primary object of our devotion. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.